another edition of a Mormon Expression. I'm your host, John Larson, and we're here tonight in Salt Lake City with another fabulous studio audience. This is your sign to clap. Now, Lindsay, that was not an enthusiastic clap. That wasn't even a golf clap. That, 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 was, a, that was a fake clap. I don't know how I feel about the clapping. It's all so new and fancy. Is it like playing a trumpet in church? It feels wrong to you? Yeah, we don't. We just don't do that here. It's not reverent. Lindsay Park is. You know, can I complain about Facebook a little bit? Please do. Well, because like um, people put their maiden names on there, mm-hmm. so I see their names in my head. You can say it. And I don't. Say it. Just I, say it. I don't want to say everybody's like do long it. fucking do name. Do it. Oh, oh man, you know what? Already. So like one minute. Uh, we do have the swear jar here, um, and people. I just want test. to tell the audience again: I've never been more disappointed in you than I am right now. Never. Never, for allowing John to continue to curse unedited. Wait, wait! You're disappointed in who? The audience. Oh. I just want to know where you got all those singles from. Well, <laughs> from shaking my moneymaker. What do you? Oh, I mean, where do you get my singles? Oh, that's that's where. Um, so. Lindsay is the um, and Lindsay is the director of the Feminist Mormon Housewives podcast and is joining us tonight. Thank and you. And we Lindsay. don't curse on our podcast as is proper. Or have better technology for beeping it out. You really? And no one has ever sworn I'm, on that. You know. I thought I appeared on that podcast once. You behaved. Oh. All right. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Lindsay, for coming. Next her is the fabulous Thane Forbes. Thane, hey. welcome. Thane, you've been done this a couple times. A couple times. Thane is the mastermind behind the New Order Mormon um, bulletin board, right? I'm the, uh, I'm the slave to the New Order Mormon site. Well, welcome. Thane's an old timer. He's been around the block for a few times. A couple times. I'm sitting next to Thane. One time I went to a party. I walked in the door. And from the back of the room, a woman came screaming at me, drunk and angry, and poked me in the chest and said, John Larson, you are wrong. That was not the first time you met me, though. No, it wasn't, but that's how I I fell in love with um, you, Jen. So if you tell me you're wrong, you'll come onto the podcast. That's the rule. Um, Jen is a great friend, and I brought her onto the podcast. Thank you, Jen. Nice to be here. Thank you. This isn't your first time. Uh, no, I, it is not. What, what's, what's the um, last one? I think the last one I was on, uh, we did a review of the children's book. Is it oh. the last one? I think we did Not Even Once Club Excellent. together. We may have done one since then. We were on the Satanist one. Oh, I was on Satanism, yeah. Yeah. Satanism's care, yeah. All right. Thank you, Jen. Mm-hmm. All right, and welcome to the studio audience again. Um, as is now our new tradition, we will begin. Um, well, actually, I wanted to bring, I have, I'm getting mail now. I have a, we have a mailbox. Um, and I got a letter, and um, this is appreciative. What I'm holding in my hand is um, is a tithing slip. Um, this, this guy, uh, who I, I appreciate, um, says in his letter, um, I'm sending you, ca- and, and I will tell you, I've gotten at least three of these from him, three tithing slips, so he's paying us his tithing now um, so on the LDS church form, and he crosses, 
He crosses out. It, it, it actually, it, it's it's right there on the tithing. You can see it's it's right there on the tithing. So um, just putting out, out, out there as an idea, you know, anybody wants to uh, send us. And I read the, the letter here. Thank you. Um, by the name of L. Smith from Cache Valley, he authorized to, who knows, maybe he's a 70. I can't keep track of him, so... All right, so uh, we start our podcast now with the week in news. Last week I was out, so we do have a little bit of catch-up to do. There are two really big stories, and Lindsay tells me there's a third. Um, the first story, of course, um, kind of crept out in the ex-Mormon world, and then suddenly it exploded all over the world news, is the, um, the, the case from, from Britain. The October surprise. The October surprise it was, and it only the took till February. February fizzle. So, uh, the, what did you just say? The February fizzle. So, uh, for those who haven't paid attention, apparently a group of two or three, I can't keep track, two or three men. Um, There's two people listed, uh, yeah, two witnesses plus um, uh, Tom. So, so Tom Phillips has um, apparently filed a... a it's not really a lawsuit because it's criminal. It's not civil, but it's it's not instigated by the prosecutors. And I am not going to pretend to understand British law at all. Um, but um, they filed a criminal fraud suit against the church, and apparently it got past the magistrate. And um, something like that. It was signed off by somebody on on letterhead, and so it must be official now. Um, but. You know, we don't. I, I don't think that we'll know anything about it until March 14th is the date that is set for Thomas S. Monson as corporate soul to appear in court. So I don't really think we're going to know anything about it. Right. Then. And the articles that have been picked up around the world are really head scratching about the <laughs> British judicial system and this magistrate who let this thing go by. Um, uh, the, the the interesting thing is the in, the in the papers we've seen. Now we haven't seen the, all of the so so the, there there's there's paperwork that was filed. There's two pages that we've seen copies of. And apparently there's a lot more paperwork behind that. Um, but you think they would lead with their most powerful stuff? And what a basically um, has a fraud against Thomas Monson on behalf of the church um, on account of things like. The Young Earth and the Book of Abraham and Book of Abraham, Book of Mormon, Young Earth um, was it not global flood. There's something. You know. Yeah, so some of the, but it's mostly standard Christian stuff, right? And um, the the interesting thing, and once again, I'm no legal scholar, but if this case were to win, it would turn the entire definition of fraud and religion on top of its head. And that's why, if you read most of the articles that are discussing it, that's why everybody's scratching their head. They're, they're really um, not paying much attention to the Mormon thing at all. That's, it's, it's, whoa, what, what sort of legal precedence would, would this be? I mean, it, all, it has a snowball's chance in hell. I don't, I don't fault the people for getting behind it, and it's actually been a little bit divisive in the ex-Mormon world because there's some people who say it's frivolous. There's some people who are really behind it. Um, there's some people who say it's giving giving ex-Mormons bad press following on the um, Newsweek article because um, the, the, the what's the adjective they like to describe? Um, disaffected, disaffected, and and you know it's the problem that we uh, ex Mormons always have is we're turncoats, right? So, so the press 
the press doesn't really, no one likes a traitor, no one likes a whistleblower, and so there, there, there's that element to the lawsuit. But it'll be interesting to watch to see what happens. I wish Tom and his guys all the best luck. It, it's going to be fun, but like I say, I, uh, I've kind of um, taken a nap pill until uh, March 14th because I don't think anything interesting is going to be said or done until then. So I'm pretty certain it'll be dismissed outright, but we'll, we'll watch and see. You know what you should do, everyone listening out there, you should go get the link of an article and post it in a Facebook group because that hasn't happened about 400 billion times yet. (laughs) As a moderator of two of the big ones, we are so tired of, we're calling it Summons Gate. Did you just say you have a big one? I was looking down. See? I try to tell you guys that I get harassed. As a feminist, John, this doesn't feel very safe to me right now. Thank you. All right, our second um, news item, um, actually, and this is quite surprising because the Salt Lake Tribune picked it up. Um, the story that, that is out is that the church is going to change the um, wedding policy. Um, it's, been, it's been a big policy for a long time in the United States that if you get married civilly, you have to wait an entire calendar year before you can get married in the temple. Um, uh, cynically... Some people say this is an uh, element to get people to pay tithing because um, it, when religions control elements like that, I mean, if, here's the way, if, if you want your religion to succeed, here's what you want to do. You want to make any sort of thing against your religion to be socially inappropriate, right? This is why the Zion Curtain is there. It's not like the church really wants to control alcohol as much as they want to control the dialogue of what's appropriate. And if they can if they can make not being Mormon or not succumbing to Mormon ways to be socially inappropriate, then you're the dick if you don't follow along with them, then you're the bad guy. And and so the, I don't know how many we all know somebody who has gone back to church for a while, paid tithing so they could go to somebody else's wedding, their niece or nephew. Everybody knows somebody who's done that. This has been a huge control mechanism the church has has deployed. However, in other places, like in Britain, it's illegal to get married privately. You have to get married publicly. So in places like that, um, the church allows people to get married publicly, and then they just go to the temple two days later. Um, But... It, it, it has to do with the church's weird morality. I mean, it's it's sort of weird. You, you know, like like you can get excommunicated in the, in the church for fucking your wife, right? Because if you went to and you guys slept together, sorry, Lindsay, she's giving me a look <laughs> like my mother. Um, so you, uh, you know, if you use the the f word twice in a movie with its meaning. <laughs> You get an X rating. You get an a, you get a, a, a what what do they call X ratings these days? NC NC seventeen. You can only refer to but but if it's whoop, just whoop, a swear whoop. word, if it's just an expletive, yeah, if it's just an expletive, you can say it a lot of times. Yeah, according to some movies I've seen hundreds of so times. So we're still under the threshold. We haven't hit the NC seventeen. Yeah, yeah, you yet only said it episode. that way once, and you could have said boned. <laughs> You know, and, and then you would have been okay. So, so, so it, it it is weirdness. Um, the thing that I was a little bit disappointed, Peggy um, Peggy Fletcher Stack is the religion um, is the chief Mormon watcher, and um, she is the religion writer for the Salt Lake Tribune, and she quoted John DeLynn's Facebook feed as part of the article. So we might be bottom feeding on this one, or we might be protecting other sources. I I don't know. 
Somebody's Facebook feed doesn't seem to me to be a valid news source, but she quoted it. And, but John said he had inside information that the church was doing this in order to keep the gays from suing the church into making people go in the temple, which is bullshit. Everybody needs to, slippery slope arguments need to stop. Please, everybody <laughs> stop them. I just have to, Peggy's a friend, and I, I would like to say that in defending her, she usually double-checks her sources. I have talked to Peggy before, personally, mm-hmm. and she is very thorough. She, I would say the same thing. So I would say that my inclination is probably this is indicating that she has the information from other sources, but she's quoting this from John because John went public. Well, and there yeah. are, you know, campaigns, organized campaigns. Jean Bodie did one and the Barker Brothers. Have yes. Yes. Um, first weddings, I think. Yeah, we. I think we have an episode with Jean Bodie and Michelle on from two or three years ago. Um, so they've been campaigning for it for a long time. It's it's a it's a no brainer on the church's part. This this has no ecclesiastical reason. It has no historical basis. It has no doctrinal reason. It's only an element of control. The church already, unless we we think that our British brothers and sisters are are only going to get in the halfway into heaven because they they've done this. Well, and not just that. I mean our grandpas and grandmas. They have to wait a year know. to get into heaven, I think is what it is. Oh, whoa, whoa, There's a whoa, one year whoa. waiting period. So I, I don't know. It, we'll we'll see. We'll be watching that one close. Now Lindsay, you said there was another story um on the internet. I don't know if it qualifies as a story. I was just saying that there's becoming an increasing backlash against Disney's new movie, The Frozen. At first, Frozen um, got, you know, more. Okay, this, so this is a c- cartoon. This is a cartoon movie, and again, more. Like with a f- singing snowman. We're on the singing same. Snowman, which okay, is okay, totally I'm, an I'm allegory to, for drugs. I'm trying to level set here. Um, stay with me here, people. Keep up. Okay. So. Although Disney is a sacred cow, almost as important to Mormons as the gospel, it it this movie came out and it's great. Like uh, there has been a, a few feminist critiques, but mostly feminism is like rallying around this and going, "Yeah, Frozen's awesome." It's like not about needing a man. It's not about falling in love with the guy that you first, you know, that you a stranger that you don't meet. And he asks consent to kiss her in the film. It's great. And it has all these good things about, like, don't be abused by your parents, you know, um, embrace who you are, blah, 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 blah. So Mormons have been loving it. Alex Boyer, who is a singer for the Mormon Church, um, did a cover of it that's gotten, like, 9 million hits or something. And and it's been really popular. But now some Mormon bloggers are starting to come out and speak against the evils that we are being, that's indoctrinating our children without us n- realizing it, like the gay agenda. Um, the gay agenda? The gay agenda, because in this song, there's a song called Let It Go, and it's about a girl who, she has this power to freeze things, and she's always had to keep it quiet in the closet, if you will. <sighs> and once she lets it go and lets it out, everyone rallies around her, and it turns out to be a good thing, not a bad thing. And since it, since she is a queen, and one of the blogs says, take that as you will, it could mean all kinds of things. So so that was one of the big posts, but there I've seen now three different posts from Mormon, Mormon bloggers so, that are getting traction so on So they it. think this is the opposite of that um, Turn It Off song from the Book of Mormon musical? <laughs> this Let It Go versus Turn It Off? Yeah, yeah. Well, since you've uh, drawn the correlation between the... Uh, the Turn It Off or the Book of Mormon musical. It's interesting to note, and I haven't seen this come across in the conspiracy theories that I've seen in the, like on the blogs that have been posted, but Robert Lopez 
who wrote the music for Frozen also wrote all of he worked with the creators of South Park to create the Book of Mormon musical as well. Oh, so it's all coming together. Exactly. It's it's the conspiracy goes deeper than than even the conspiracy theorists have theorized. Wow. And there is Disney's first gay family portrayal um, in the sauna when he, I don't know if you've seen it, but he opens the door and he says, hi, family, and there's his husband and kids. And so, see, we're creeping in. Satan gets you. He doesn't control the waters. He controls Disney. So I have a question. I saw the movie. So she goes up and makes this big ice castle. Mm-hmm. Gay. You know, I almost cheered up when I said ice castle. <laughs> <laughs> That's the saddest movie ever. <laughs> but she makes this big ice castle, and then they Drugs. find her a couple of days later, and she yeah. comes down from upstairs. What the hell is she was doing upstairs? That's the only thing I could think about when I was watching the movie. Lesbian sex with her sister, probably. No, her sister was at the door. No, see, look, it's just promoting incest and pornography. And the way, way, okay. So the the Mormon bloggers are that you're not making this up. They're no. really saying this. Yeah, I'm. You didn't yeah. make up the lesbian sex thing. Lesbian sex, no. The you polygamy, probably. But we, I mean, at FMH, we did a we did a counter blog post, and we found the real hidden themes in Frozen, which was a lot of fun. But um, so, yeah, no, and I think this is great because I think that if the conservative Mormons uh, continue to be more conservative, and they turn on their sacred cow Disney, then that is just going to be a disaster. But Disney's been gay-friendly for a long time. Disneyland's pretty gay, right? It's pretty fabulous. You think, John? <laughs> I, mean, I like it. I mean that in the most... Oh, we're coming from the gay studio here. I, I, mean, I mean that in a... Weren't they one of the first... Um, to give like health benefits to gay partners and I think same so. sex partners. I just want to say though that you can point out a good Mormon blogger that's super homophobic when they say in their blog posts. Now that doesn't mean that I hate gay people. I have gay friends, but. Hmm. I see where. So anyway, so I thought that was a story worth noting because I think it's great to watch. All right. Well, we'll we'll we'll, we'll keep the Disney Gay Watch tuned in <laughs> right here. Go to if you want to read the the original post, the one that got a lot of traction. It's on well behaved, a well behaved Mormon woman's blog. All right, well, excellent. Okay, so uh, that's that's the news. Um, let's let's go into our topic tonight. We're talking about um, Mormons and violence, um, and and I, I can't remember how I got this idea, but um, um, anyway, here we are. So. Um, the 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 church, of course, lives in the West. Um, that's where it's headquartered. As every missionary who's gone out practicing their little cultural imperialism throughout the rest of the world sort of knows that we're not just selling um, uh, American culture; we're selling Western American culture. Um, and and um, part of that is a um, a theme of violence, and it's been with us in the West for a long time. Well, hell, I mean, the theme of violence has been with the human beings for a long time. But particularly out here, there's a strong streak of independence and of guns and of sort of a libertarian view of keeping the government away because of, of threat. Um, and, and that's something uh, we'll, we'll, we'll come back to that near the end, end of the of the podcast. But that idea has spawned a certain. Well, what what is the relationship between um, Mormons and and violence? It's one of the questions that I always have to my liberal Mormon friends who say, "Well, I don't really believe the church, but I'm in it for Mormon culture." Then the next question I always ask is, "What's Mormon culture?" And then they say, "Well, Jello, uh, 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 go read the." 
Jello blogs, and you'll find out that in Minnesota they're really into Jello too. So that might be more of a Scandinavian thing, maybe. And, and then they'll start pointing out things that are like Western. Uh, well, there's plenty of people in Payson who never set foot in a church, or in Phoenix, or in Denver who are doing the exact same thing. So it's very interesting question sometimes to take things that we think are really part and parcel to the church and saying, well, is that really there? So let's go back to the beginning. Let's go back to the Book of Mormon. Yes, let's. The Book of Mormon is the most bloody, <laughs> violent-soaked piece of scripture to ever hit the... Is it, is it worse than the Koran? I don't... I shouldn't say stuff like that. That's going to get me in trouble. It's, uh, is it, it's pretty... Uh, the, the Book of Mormon is a violent book. This is my point. The Book of Mormon leads the story with the story of Joseph, or not Joseph, uh, Freudian slip, <laughs> Nephi and, and, um, and Laban, right? And Laban is drunk. To, to remember, they, they, they get out there and they realize they forgot their scriptures. So they need to get a Bible because if we don't have a Bible in Mesoamerica, who knows what could happen? So we have to go back to Jerusalem and get a Bible, and it's not like there's plenty of these scrolls all over around. Um, we have to yes, get yes. There's the, only one in in Laban's house in Jerusalem. That's the only one that we can get. It happens to be on plates because that was really common in Jerusalem, right? Yes, to have the Bible that's what I heard, right yes. engraved in plate. Uh, okay. Uh, uh, the, the, <laughs> the Book of Mormon is full of anachronisms, right? And they're they're kind of comical once you know them. The idea of scripture. Like the idea that it would all be compiled together in one book is like kind of a third century concept. I mean, like third century AD. Like, so you would have had on a scroll the Song of Solomon, and you would have had another scroll that would have had Isaiah, and they would have been on these, these and you would have rolled them out, and you would have read from them. There was no concept of like printing them in a book. <laughs> like, like, that just that that idea doesn't really exist at the time. I mean, I'm sure you could find something out there somewhere, but that they made like just because the Chinese had rifles in the, the 12th century, that doesn't mean everybody was carrying around a rifle in the 12th century. So 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 anyway, that's an anachronism. Anyway, they go back to get the Bible from from Laban here, and they try a couple times. They try to trade with money and blow and hookers and everything, and they and he won't give he won't give them up. But but then they go back and. Laban is drunk. He's passed out drunk, right? He's, he is, he, he's dead drunk. He's he, asking for it. <laughs> I am so uncomfortable right now, Lindsay. I'm surprised she says that on the no. Mormon and Violence podcast, but when she brings up rape later, let's remind her that she I have a that. I have a rape book sitting in front of me right now. There's a reason Lindsay, why I said that. Lindsay's been reading this rape book, and I've been hearing about it virtually every day. It's she true. has rape it's on the mind. such mark. a good book. So, speaking of rape, Laban is there, laying there in the, in the ground, in a pool of his own, whatever. And so, Nephi could have very well stepped over him, right? Got it. Swiped the book. Um, he felt the spirit instead. And a prompting, right? Or, and, and God said, you're not going to let that motherfucker just lay there. You've got to take off his head. Right? Um, all right. So... Any of you guys have sharp knives at home? <laughs> really, really <laughs> sharp knives. So we've been influenced by media for a long time. If you want to cut through 16 inches of meat... Oh, my gosh. <laughs> 
This is not this an easy... This podcast needs a bunch of safe words <laughs> and trigger warnings. <laughs> this is not an easy... I'm going to get why this is important in <laughs> just a second. I'm not, this is not an easy operation, right? A butcher would pull out a saw. <laughs> you're not, you're not going to take a short sword in the Bronze Age. <laughs> <laughs> There's bone. There's sinew. The point is, he cuts off his head and then he disrobes him, right? (laughs) And he puts on the clothes. Those clothes would be mangled. They would be gross. He was alive. His heart was beating. Like there would be blood splatter everywhere. But this is how the Book of Mormon starts. It's like 10 pages in. <laughs> okay, Dexter, let's talk about the things for just a minute. So this is, this is the scripture, and we have a beheading. But I think, I mean, more than it just being violent, we have to understand what this means for Mormons. This story is very important to Mormons. And when I made, when I made the joke he's asking for, I didn't make that lightly. There is a culture in Mormonism that... Uh, really, really believes that violence is justified in certain cases. And we will see that throughout the history of Mormonism. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, on an aside, I think I'm going to record like a tape series of just John to explain the scriptures to you. <laughs> I think that would be better than one where, wasn't it Bruce Lindsay, the old anchorman for Channel 5, who's the voice of the Book of Mormon? If you go down to Deseret Book, he's the voice of the Book of Mormon. All right, so... So, so you're right. There's this culture, and it's throughout the Book of Mormon. So we start violent, and it just gets worse from there. And the not con- just violent, but a justification for a justification. Violence. So, so if we if we skip down to Captain Moroni, this guy, and I, I saw in the news there was a protest where people are starting to print up the Captain Moroni banners, and they're, they're this is a this is a thing they want to go to Washington. Everybody's gonna be like, what, what are you guys talking about? They're gonna read those things for our family. But any, anyway, so but but this is all about kicking ass and taking names through this whole book, right? That 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 we are going to violently um, to violently um, make take, our cause take what kingdom. we need to take. And and to reiterate Lindsay's thought, yeah, there is a culture of of uh, violence is justified, and it seems to me like most of the time it's violence is justified when I can get away with it without being hurt. You know, it you know taking off the head of a drunk man or Indians I, I or I, I would disagree with you. I think the the wars in the Book of Mormon aren't just violence is justified without. Getting caught. We're talking about full-blown battles, wars that wipe out entire races of people, some of which are just because of their race. Um, ordained by God. I think that but, that's... And ordained this, by God. This is, this is the key, because the subtext of the Book of Mormon, not su- I think they state it flat out, is that when the Nephites become wicked, and the implication oftentimes is sex, right, and alcohol and other things, that, that the God takes the dirty, loathsome Lamanites and stirs them up, is the word, to go, to go attack the Nephites. The God uses war and violence and blood and gore as a way to chastise people for not obeying God's rules. That the violence is God's means and mechanism. That he used the Lamanites in order to attack the, the, the Nephites with blood and horror. I agree. And I do think it's important, though, to, I mean, I know we're talking about Mormonism and, and violence in the Book of Mormon right now, but I, I would say this isn't exclusive to Mormonism, and you read the Bible, and we've got the same themes 
happening and and you know other prominent religions as well so I would argue that, that God ordering war, justifying war, people justifying it because it's ordained by God, um, is is a theme throughout Christianity, well, yeah. not what, just Mormonism. What, what I like, the Book of Mormon tries to explain and justify its violence. What I like about the Bible is it just, it just you know, you just go kill them and nobody cares. And, and, and the violence and the violence against women that's implicit, I mean, everybody weeps and, and, and cries over the story of Abraham and Isaac, right? Who's the dude who comes home after the battle and says, God, thanks for winning the battle, and I'll kill the first thing I find, and it's his daughter, and he just kills her? No one seems to have any problem with that story. It's in the fucking Bible, and no one seems to—it never comes up. It's always Isaac, you know? Well, I think think what the Book of Mormon does is it gives Mormons a way to act out violence in a very—what would be a very Mormon way, which we'll see. But, I mean, the story of Laban is so important to me because I— the drunk part, I keep going back to that, but as Mormons, we have this this obsession with being drunk now in contemporary Mormonism, but it wasn't always that way, right? So a contemporary read is going to be a lot different than, say, an, you know, a 19th century read. And I know a woman who was um, raped, and she got pregnant, and she confessed to her bishop about it. And the bishop told his daughter who happened to be friends with the girl because they were in the same ward. Mm. And his justification was sometimes we have to break rules um, because... His justification for spilling the, for telling his telling daughter. Telling his daughter who then told everyone. Um, sometimes we have to break the rules just like they did with Laban. I mean, they had to kill him and cut off his head. But again, he was drinking. And, you know, you were in a car making out with a boy. Mm. And so... Not only is it physical violence it's advocating for, but it's justifying all kinds of violence against people, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, I, I think so. I, yeah, the, 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 the righteous violence. And, and, I mean, I think that's an astute point that you make. Yeah, uh, and, and Mormons aren't going to read it that way, saying, well, because how many times in, and, and Mormons aren't the only ones to do this. You can find those old movies from the 60s about mm-hmm. the girl. She took just one drink, and then they find her, and, and 24 hours later, she's like a prostitute in Singapore. And there's just nothing, you know, if she hadn't taken the one drink, she, it wouldn't have all gone downhill. So, yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean, Jen, to your point, the Book of Mormon is a reflection of its time, and the time of the Book of Mormon is, of course, the early 19th century um, uh, Western uh, America on the on the frontier, um, and um, and Joseph Smith at the time was in Indian territory. Now um, I realize that I haven't given this this presentation on the podcast. It was my Sunstone presentation for a couple of years ago. I need to bring it up where I explain why the Book of Mormon is all about the Iroquois. Because those were the Indians that Joseph Smith was in, and he was right smack dab in the middle of the five nations. And there would have been, at the time, you couldn't kick through mounds and not find artifacts from the burial mounds um, because the Iroquois would be buried in their battle gear, right? So if you're a naive farmer and you see these big mounds start digging in, you're going to find lots of bodies piled in there wearing breastplates and with swords and with other stuff. Um, I, I have documentation that shows that they would bury themselves with swords because they've had swords since the 17th century when the Spanish started um, trading them. What's your conclusion? There were some big 
ass battles, and they were so big that they piled their dead into great big piles, right? There, there, there'd be big mounds of, the, of these dead. What, what else could explain it but these big, these big piles? But so you, so you have this, this violence, this, this frontier sort of violence, this interaction between the settlers and, and, and the natives that, that had permeated the culture. And, and you have, we're not, Joseph Smith's born 1805. Um, um, this is a violent time. Um, the, the War of 1812, there were battles going on, the French-Indian Wars, there were, the, we weren't that far removed from the Revolution. Colonialism everywhere. It, it, it was, a, the frontier was taken with blood and guts. And, and, it, and it, sensationalized. I mean, there were novels and, uh, I wanted to say telenovas, uh, pamphlets. Everything coming out, Joseph would have heard stories, he would have um, maybe seen literature that really sensationalized this violence. It was sort of this, the Americans' romance with the violence of indigenous people and, you know, colonizing the West. And the violence was laced with an American exceptionalism, this inevitability that the, that the, 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 the pure and delightsome white people were destined, this is not just a Mormon idea, but that the, 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 the Caucasian people were the superior race, and that showed over and over again whenever, whenever they went and ran into the indigenous populations and colonialized them and, and were superior to them and smallpoxed them you know, and, and then took over. And that idea got mixed on the frontier with this religious interpretation because the, because the frontier folks got out ahead of the Bible. They got out ahead of the churches. So they, what I meant to say, by they, got, they got out ahead of the churches with their Bible. So they started reading it. Instead of having it dictated to them every Sunday in churches that had been there for a thousand years, they were reading that shit for the first time and they were in love with it. It was crazy. It was wild. It matched their experience and there was this idea and theme that anything could happen at any time right that, and and that that the end was right on top of it uh, on top of us and that that there's a there's a violence in that whole um in that whole narrative i know you don't want me to read a quote but i'm going to do it go ahead <laughs> he doesn't want me to do it but um this is from Toni Morrison, and I feel like when we're talking about this discussion, we need to keep this in mind, because for me, all of the violence, almost all of the violence is uh, about racial violence in, in the Book of Mormon and then, again, in the, you know, the Utah period. So to Toni Morrison, talking about America, says, The American self knows itself as not enslaved but free. Not repulsive, but desirable. Not helpless, but licensed and powerful. Not historyless, but historical. Not damned, but innocent. Not a blind accident of evolution, but a progressive fulfillment of destiny. And I feel like that is Mormonism. I mean, we talk about being in the land of the free, the home of the brave. Well, it's not free. Who was it free for? A select few of people. You know, and, and we do that in Mormonism constantly. We're dividing the wicked from the, you know, the saints the dark skin from the light skin. And that's going to, I think we can't talk about violence and Mormonism without talking about that aspect. Well, and, and so one of the first revelations is as, as Mormonism moved out of New York, of course that they, they hooked in with the Ohio, with the um, Ohio people. Um, but the first revelation was of course, to go to Kansas city, to go to independence, Missouri. And this was not by mistake, because on the other side of the river were the Indian territories. Over in Kansas and Iowa, you, you had the, the, the lands, and the revelations were that the, they were going to go and convert these. 
these these people. And this is a cultural violence. Although I think a lot of people, today we see the narrative that way. We can understand it. I don't know if they were as clear at that time, but it was about conquering. It was about overcoming. And matter of fact, they even talked about, this is fairly well known, that the brethren were going to go down to Missouri and they were going to start taking Indian wives, right? Um, as that, that was one of the first open acknowledgments of polygamy, and it was a form of, of, of cultural imperialism again. It was a form of going over and saying, you guys, your culture, um, your indigenous culture is filthy, it's wrong, it's dirty, it's backwards, and what you need to do is convert over. And what's the big promise of the Book of Mormon is someday these filthy Indians are going to realize the error of their way and they become light, white and delightsome again and return to their Judaism, right? That's the fundamental. People talk about the Mormons rewriting stuff. Like, what are they going to do with the Book of Mormon? The whole thing is a shitstorm. Uh, but in, anyway, um, so so they're they're coming out here to the frontier, and this is the frontier. Um, and by that, I mean you know, do you, you had just like today, if you want to escape, you you don't you don't come go to Las Vegas. You're if you're Bin Laden, you go out to the caves of Afghanistan. You go to the edge of civilization, and this was the edge of civilization. And, and that means that the, the legal system was not um, very well in place and, and rough people went out there. And um, <clears throat> when you read the writings of um, the early church members, there's this attitude. Now, they, they were, the, the, let's be clear, the Missourians believed that they were prissy New Englanders because they were coming down. But these guys weren't like Boston New Englanders. Um, that they, they were pretty rough themselves. And um, you know, when Sidney Rigdon, who was fairly eloquent, got everybody pissed off with a salt sermon, the, the the problem was that the Mormons promised violence for violence. That the Mormons said, "We're going to come in and take over this place, and we're going to take everything." And as the war heated. It got hot on both sides. Now, when the the first wave, remember the, the the Mormons came down in like 31, 32, and they were kicked out by 34. Um, the, uh, but then they they came, they went up up county, up further in the state, and resettled again. They weren't kicked out till like 38 or 39. And that's when the battle really started. Now, there were raids going back and forth on both sides. Most people who, who've read enough church history understand this. The church has covered it up completely as much as they can. What that means is that Mormon raiders were doing the same thing the Missourians were doing. So I'm not, I, don't, I, don't, I don't want to point either side. But they would go into these farmhouses, and they would go and steal everything. And then they would burn the place down. And and then they would take that stuff to the bishop's storehouse, and and they would be doing these cross border raids. Um, it erupted in the Battle of Crooked River, where there was a raid on the judge. Did anybody remember the judge's name? Oh, they shot this judge in the belly, um, and he died. And that's when David Patton, who was a member of the Twelve, was also shot, and he later died. That's the battle that precipitated the taking over of um, of the city. Um, and then the capture of Joseph Smith and the others. And there were several who turned turncoat. Um, some of the um, members of the Twelve um, ratted, ratted out the, the big bosses. But this whole time, they were armed, and they were dangerous, and they were ready to go. And this, of course, comes after Zion's camp, when they were marching down across the country with guns. 
So what's, what's interesting, you look at this whole period, this whole rhetoric from Joseph Smith, who, who could be very friendly and very nice, but there was never an element of pacifism in Mormonism. It was always on the edge of the knife. It was always on the edge of violence. And either you were going to convert or you were going to be destroyed. And because the church was building the kingdom of God, when we juxtapose this to evangelicalism, which says there will be the rapture and everybody's going to get burned up by demons, for Mormons, it was the Mormons who were going to do it because because we were going to build that kingdom here and like it or not, you were coming along. Yeah, and I feel like there, you know, we always talk about the mob persecution against us, which was a very real thing. There was a lot of violence Absolutely. against women. I, I feel like rape gets left out of the discussion a lot, but there's a lot of rape scholarship coming out about uh, early Mormons and um people like Eliza R. Snow, who was said to be a victim. And so, anyway, um, I bring that up to say that also Mormons often made bad choices that um, would infuriate an angry mob, and they did so for political leverage. And so that was dangerous as well. And I feel like often the women and the children that were innocent, not making the decisions, were the victims of these you know, political struggles and struggles for the land. And, and I feel like that often gets left out of the discussion. And so just, I just wanted to throw that out there. No, you, you're, you're right. As they're, as they're raiding these different towns and different places, you know, look at like the Hans Mill massacre, you know, that, that it wasn't just the, the men out into battle who suffered the consequence. And, and um, you know, I think you're absolutely right because the, um, the, the stories of rape are going to be left out of this, out uh, um, for various reasons. Um, one, it's still, it's, still shameful, right? It's not, it's not happy to acknowledge. But listen, if, when there are troops that raid, they always rape. Just, that always happens. Um, why that is, I, I Because rape is a, is a tool of war, and it's um, a sign of power. And uh, it's a way, it's a sign to control um, your victims in, in so many senses. Well, this is this is um, uh, one of the one of the arguments I have with a lot of um, um, ex Mormons about polygamy. As polygamy becomes instituted, you know, they they tend to portray Joseph Smith and Brigham Young as sex fiends or as men who are exercising sexual power. The second sentence is closer. I think I think um, the practice of polygamy was about power, was about the commoditization of these women. And oftentimes, when you look at the marriages that these guys performed, the marriages Joseph Smith performed, these were dynastical. Meaning, he didn't just randomly pick the prettiest girl in, in the city. They were picking women that were associated with certain families to create these, these, these bonds and these structures, um, which is a form of sexual violence or commoditizing that sexuality of, 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 of the women, and it's, 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 it's shameful. It, it works several ways, too, because um, when you take, you know, 30-odd wives or 50-odd wives, if you're Brigham Young, uh, you're exercising power over the women, obviously. You're exercising power over uh, their families. You know, you own the family. You own the women. You own their family. And you have taken that woman away from every other man in the city. And so you, you are exercising indirect power over all these, you know, 40 odd men that aren't going to get to marry these women that you've taken out of the, out of the pool, you know. Right, yeah. I mean, when you look at the, the heartbreaking case of Henry, um, Jacobs. Jacobs, yeah. Um, and the letters he writes to Zena. And and as he remains faithful, but you know these guys taking his you know one yeah. after the other yeah. repeatedly for thirty years. Um, um, and and yeah, you know 
because because J- Henry Jacob's father children with Zena after the marriage. So so th- this was Joseph Smith like exercising this control. Like it's not like the marriage was dissolved and said no no I'm a higher priest and I'm taking your your wife. It was I have this right over the top. We we see this sort of thing happen in other societies, um, and it's 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 a shameful act. It's not just in other societies, though. It's in other animals as well. So I think it's important to acknowledge that while men don't need to act on those urges if they've got them or if they're not one of the more powerful men like Joseph Smith that that tends to act on those urges or tends to to exercise that power, um, in other species, and particularly primates, if we're talking about humans, we're, we're seeing the same type of behavior. And evolutionarily, sexual selection promotes men who do this, and and it's not it's not just a cultural phenomenon, is what I'm trying to say. It's definitely biological as well. I think that's true, and we see more of that among like the chimps. That they, they can be rather sexually violent. I I always hope that we're more like the bonobos who use <laughs> sex kind of as a I, I do want to say, since I've been reading a, about rape and... Wait, you're going to steal my bonobo point away already. You're not going to let that one go before you go right back to rape. Really I, was trying to, to I was trying to go someplace happy, you know. No, I bonobo. just wanted to point out that um, rape is traditionally seen as like a European, um, more Western view of uh, power. Because there's a lot of debate whether Indians raped as much as the the colonizers did and um, most of the scholarship says that they didn't. I mean they had religious and sexual uh, mores that prevented them from doing that which is rare because like you said in violence like this it's rare. Now now, uh, a lot of the indigenous people would like hatchet the prettiest woman or scalper but um, and they were they had very interesting different sexual mores with their own wives but I just feel like um, this is also a very like Western European thing to um, the Abrahamic idea of polygamy is we see in other traditions, but in the way that it's practiced in a Mormon way, like you said, is about power and entitlement. And I feel like that that is what we're going to see. The whole Mormon story is about power. It's about authority. It's about um, amassing goods, which is why City Creek shouldn't be a Big controversy now. It's what we've always done. It's Mormonism, you know. But there's cheesecake there. What are you talking about? I didn't say it was bad or good. I haven't eaten the cheesecake there. I'm sure it's great. Uh, so okay, so let's 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 move forward. Let's move out of the rape raping Nauvoo plains and and move out out west. So, but before we 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 need to at least give homage to to the martyrdom of um, Joseph Smith. Um, so Joseph Smith was was in was in jail um, and. Um, the Carthage Greys showed up, and, but Joseph had sent for his um, military folks too. Um, it, it, I think the evidence is pretty good that Joseph thought he was going to be jail busted. Um, and let's be clear, absolutely, that I will give homage to call him a martyr, but I will say it's a stretch because they had smuggled a gun into Joseph, and um, Joseph died in a gunfight. And he unloaded that gun in the the mob that was attacking him violently, unjustly, and illegally. But he did die with guns ablazing, which is a stretch of the word martyr. Um, and and so 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 the 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 man 
was an interesting, dynamic, fascinating religious genius, but he did die bloody, and that's how he lived, um, especially the last year where he was prone to prancing around in a uniform with a great big Napoleonic hat and insisting everybody called him general. I don't make this shit up. Um, and he, I think he went nuts, and I think most people sort of, well, that begs the question of when he was sane. But he was... A, he was. <laughs> he did confess to Brigham that he lost his spirit at the end. So, so um, Says who? What? Says Brigham Young. Well, Brigham. You need to listen about. to my, my podcast, my polygamy <laughs> series. Uh, I don't doubt you. Um, now, so, so that's a great transition. Every great movement, um, and to quote um, Ollivander, the wand maker... <laughs> You can be great and still be evil. What does he say? Who's a Harry Potter fan? Anyway, never mind. I'm sure somebody's yelling at their at their their iPod right now. Um, so so every great movement has two dynamic leaders. They have a visionary and an, and a, basically an executioner. There is Lenin and there is Stalin. There is Shea and there is um, uh, uh, Castro. Castro. Um, there is Socrates and there is Plato. There is there is Darwin and there is Huxley. There is always the, the visionary and then the guy who can make something happen. And that dynamic pair exists in these two too. You have this, usually the visionary is disorganized and unable to hold a movement together. The second guy, the Stalin, is the guy who can go in and kick ass and do what needs to be done. And that's who Brigham Young was. And Brigham Young did not mess around. And he was the man that it took to build the colony and hold it together. Joseph would have never held it together. If, if Joseph had not been martyred, it would have all blown up. It was blowing up at the time. And it had to be reinvented by Brigham Young. And it was reinvented on the plains with violence. Now, Brigham surrounded himself with some pretty nasty fellows. Everybody knows and has been glorified, of course. Um, um, we have um, Porter Rockwell. There's a great statue. I need to post some pictures of down in front of the Lehigh City offices. And he's got two guns, and there's a woman. Have you seen it? You'd love this. It, you know, like the Star Wars poster from 77? Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I swear to God, this is right down in Lehigh. This is a statue. He's got two guns and his beard, and there's a woman clinging to his thigh <laughs> in a prairie dress. Has, have you guys seen this? It is down there. I'm telling you. Is it that is supposed to be Porter? No, it's not porn. Well, it's power porn. Um, no, Porter, Porter Rockwell. Oh. oh. <laughs> yes, it is Porter Rockwell. Cause oh, he, cause the rumors are that he uh, had a thing for Joseph Smith. So. You mean a, a thing? A thing. Like he was uncharacteristically loyal. Perfection. He was Porter. Yes. Porter was one of the six. He had been with Joseph from the beginning. And he was loyal to Joseph the, the whole time. a little bit off his rocker, too. He was a murderer. He was a bad guy. He wasn't the worst. The worst was probably Wild Bill Hickman, um, who was a savage um, and was eventually excommunicated. These guys were not nice people. And, like, there's, you know, there's debates around, you know, like, because there was, um, you know, they would find heads, the, the 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 three severed heads of the women they found outside of Salt Lake City that no one ever identified. The assumption is they were prostitutes who were brought in. Um, blood atonement. Blood atonement. Um, so, but but we don't know. That's conjecture. We don't know who these three women are. 
But the fact remains that they found three separate heads outside of Salt Lake City. But we do know a lot, a lot of other things that were happening. Especially Southern Utah was like the crazy place. Now, now let's now at the beginning of the podcast, I I talked about removing Mormonism from the West, the West, the whole frontier. Whenever the as the as American expansion got out in front of the judicial system, it was bloody everywhere because it. Now there wasn't. You know, like the movies with people gunning each other down in the streets. That that didn't happen that much, but it was a violent place. And Lindsay and I were talking earlier today. Um, this was Indian territory, right? The the Aboriginal Americans were all through the West. And whenever you have nomadic people um, who who are not landed, when you get landed, then you build fences and have armies. But nomadic people are violent by nature. You, you don't have any sort of nomadic people who are peaceful. So let's not fall into the trap that we've fallen in the last 30, 30 or 40 years of romanticizing the, 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 the natives, the Aboriginal Americans. They were a violent lot. They were less violent than their invaders, obviously. But, but they're also coming off of centuries of uh, Systematic violence against them. Systematic violence, exploitation. Um, slave trade, which was the, huge. The, the slave trade began and was flourished among the Indians, um, especially in the South. Um, you, yeah, you, you have all these elements of, of, of violence. So as as the um, as the Brigham Young's um, strategy in the West was to colonize every major water spring. This is why you have all these little pissant Mormon communities from here to Timbuktu to San Bernardino. That was by chance. That wasn't by chance because they scouted out and found every possible place where there could be a town. And then Brigham Young wanted to colonize them to keep the to keep everybody away. It was a strategic move. The one thing he didn't anticipate was the discovery of the minerals and because he didn't plan on them putting um, mining towns up in the hills so that's how the the gentile influence got got here anyway and then of course by by um 60 68 69 when the railroad was completed um and then ogden turned into the shithole it is today um, uh, <laughs> sorry I, I i grew i grew up in, in, in the ogden area so, but but the, this whole area was populated by nomadic Indians who were already violent, and then we're putting in this violent um, stream, and you get the tinderbox that led to 1857, and then Mount Meadows. Yeah, and th- there are tons and tons of Indian skirmishes. So that was one form of violence that was going on. And what's ironic is Brigham Young finds an ally in a lot of these tribes. So the Utes were like. You know, pervasive everywhere. They were warlords. They did nasty stuff. They were selling slaves. They were kidnapping people, and they ruled the West. Well, the Paiutes lived in Utah, and when Brigham Young gets there, these guys are kind of relieved to have some someone kind of be the buffer. So Brigham Young finds ways to um, organize with these um, indigenous people so he can fight against the federal government, and we'll see that acted out in Mormon Meadows. They get the Indians to do their dirty work. Mountain Meadows. What did I say? Mormon Meadows. Mountain Meadows. <laughs> well, let's let there's some controversy there um, about the the um, Indians doing the dirty work because um, um, well, it's not exactly clear how many Indians were there and how many were just the elders dressing up like Indians. No, absolutely. But what I'm saying, I mean, regardless, let's say 
that we just go with the white settlers that uh, wore war paint. They wanted the Indians to take the fall for the, it. The traditional narrative the, the, is that the, all the men were executed by the the by um, the elders by the elders with guns, and then they had the Indians take hatchets to the women and children on the uh, on the trains. Because that the elders yeah. couldn't stomach it. But but before that, they had the Indians raiding the. So what they would this is common, um, especially for the Southern Utah time when when settlers were going west, uh, and especially like you said, fifty seven. That's when Johnson's army's coming. We're super super paranoid about outsiders, and there's all these rumors that if any outsiders come, you kill them. You kill them because this is God's kingdom. We have to protect ourselves. Well, and this grew out of let me um, that. Brigham Young was making a real effort to control the overland routes, um, and to and and they would do things like go um, pick up spoilage, um, floatsum and jetsum, and 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 sell things at prices. He was he was making a real economic effort to control the trade routes coming across, um, which is one of the reasons the Oregon Trail goes up further north, and, and because because he had really political influence, which is why one of the reasons Johnson's army went out there in the first place because they were harassing. Settlers, go ahead. Yeah, and, and that's why a lot of these tribes really got along, I, I would say, well for the time with Mormons because they had a common em- enemy, the American government. And so Mormons would often uh, exploit these Indians by saying, here, uh, these settlers are coming through. We're going to give you a heads up. We're going to support you. Go raid their camp, and you can take their spoils. We just want them to go away. And so there are the Mountain Meadows was a case like that. I mean, it's there's... It's really messy how it started, but uh, they were raided for days, days and days, like seven or eight days, by um, Indians, and that's when the you know the white settlers came in and said, "Hey, we'll protect you." Now, of course, they were also being raided by Mormons, mm-hmm. and that's part of the problem as well. Well, there was an obvious trade going on where the the Indians would raid the the, the wagon trains, but then they would find the spoils that were being purchased back around. They were buying stolen goods, and everybody knew what was going on, you know. Um, a couple of you know six Indians come walk, coming into St. George with like all this stuff from wherever Arkansas. So I'm like, well, where'd you get this? You know, it wasn't. It wasn't. It, well, and then they eventually took it away from the Indians anyway, and it and right. got back into Mormon hands. But I mean, can we talk about Mountain Meadows a little bit more? Sure. Do we want to talk about the the our our favorite story from the Brigham Young and the and the slaves yet? Yeah. Well, yeah. Let's get there in just a second. Let's. I mean, it's your podcast. <laughs> I tell you what to cool. do. No, I just, uh, I was just down in Mountain Meadows, so I'm kind of obsessed with it. But and and I had an ancestor that was, um, he was listed as a clubber and a shooter. <laughs> Dudley Lovett. But anyway, um, they so the settlers come in, they're attacked. They realize that Mormons are attacking them as well, and it's not just the Indians. And the Mormons are like, oh crap, we have to kill them now because they know it's us, and they're gonna, you know, send the army, and we're really gonna be screwed. And there's a big controversy if Brigham Young gave the order or not. And anyway, they they end up uh, promising protection to these settlers. They completely deceive them, and they uh, have them line up. They put all the women and children in the front wagons. They send the Indians out in the bushes up ahead to hide and wait with their hatchets, and then they have the men um, line up, and then all the wounded in two wagons behind. And then they one, have one to one. So the the locals. 
Each mm-hmm. have a person at their... Yep, they send the high council to go round up local people from uh-huh. uh, Cedar City and southern Utah area, bring them out uh, with loaded weapons. And and then they have... Um, it's interesting because we, we like to say that it's anyone under the age of eight that was saved, right? But really, if you read the accounts of the people talking about it, they say anyone who couldn't talk, hmm. which I think is fascinating. So, so they line them up, they walk with them about a mile, and then they give the signal, the Indians jump out of the bushes just hack the women to pieces. You, got, you have to give the signal because it's beautiful. Go ahead. Do your duty. Brethren, Brethren do, your, do your duty. duty. Yeah. And, and I, I think we should talk about that too, how the priesthood is is really tied to this violence. So anyway, so they do that. They uh, turn, they kill the wounded. And of course, it's chaos. People start running. And so now they're chasing people down. And it's horrific, horrific violence. And it, they leave the bodies there for a while. They uh, they purposefully scatter the bodies and let them be and, devoured well, and by wolves. And they the bodies. They scatter the bodies. They take all the clothes off. Then they have second thoughts. And they decide they're going to bury them six or eight inches deep which didn't really work out because then the coyotes and the wolves come and take them again. And so that, you know, you got violence on top of violence on top of violence, you know. Well, violence on top of violence on top of desecration. Desecration. Well, it it doesn't end there. The the violence for me is they take the children who survived, and, of course, their ages are funny. They they say 16 to 17. There's some controversy that uh, one of one of the men actually marries one of the children later on. But um, they take these, these children and they ship them off. Jacob Ham- Hamblin takes them. And he, they've got like a bunch of kids shipped off to... All they these scatter homes. them among scatter all these Mormon families. And these, these traumatized kids, mo- most of them are injured. One of them lost the use of her arm for the rest of her life. Um, live in this depraved state with the very, very poor Southern Utah Mormons for a year until the army comes and takes them away. But... What I find really painful about that is not only did we try to incorporate them and, you know, we're going to baptize them and save them, but these kids, a lot of them remembered that and they would talk about it later. They, one woman could recognize a dress that her mother wore. Um, some people could recognize the men that killed their own parents. And, uh, you know, they, one, one woman said that she went back to the site with a couple Mormon girls you know, in the same year and saw the bodies out there with the bleach, sun bleach bones. So I just, I mean, it wasn't just the violence didn't end there. And then we take all their stuff and then we use their cattle to, to, uh, and, and let, let's be clear. The violence has not stopped. If you go to my website, johnlarson.org, I have pictures up there that I took. They're about five years old of the, the site, the monument on the, it's not even on the kill site. It's, it's a little bit off from the kill site. Um, the monument is a monument to Gordon Hinckley building a monument on the site of the former monument. I am not making this up. It, I have the pictures there of the plaque, and the plaque says, on this spot, yeah. Gordon B. Hinckley dedicated a monument. And then if you go around the backside, there's a fucking list of all the monuments that have ever been there. You have to go up, um, Sil, what's the name of the, the hill? Sill Hill. Sill Hill or whatever. Yeah, Dan Sill. Dan Sill Hill. And that's where the state has their site. And then it tells you what happened down there. But if you go to the actual site, it is just a monument the church right. built. There used to, to be a monument self. here, and this is a monument to the monument that used to yes. be here. You, you, you all think I'm making this up. It's no, I'd, I'd encourage everyone to go read Gordon B. Hingley's dedicatory prayer on the site. Oh, yeah, which doesn't say I, I anything. I would encourage everyone who hasn't been down there to make the day trip and do it. And, and who gives a fuck about Hingley's prayer on that I mean whatever it's 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 arresting to see well it's, it's like any memorial where you you know 
tragedy occurred. I mean, it, you just you stand there and you can't believe it. it so I, the tears. I know what our faithful listeners are saying right now. They're saying this is an aberration. Um, and they would say there's no proof that Brigham Young ordered the, the, the kill, and I would agree with that. But Brigham Young and the Mormons created an environment infused and impregnated with violence and with this victim mindset that puts the world against us. And Brigham Young, I believe, personally, was too savvy to ever order the killing. Um, but he sure as hell got involved in the cover-up. And, and what, what you have is a man who's responsible for creating this culture in which something like this could happen. And what, what's, what's funny, we've ta- we were talking about the Indians, because Mountain Meadows is so stark, it's so bloody, it's such a terrible event, that we dismiss the body count of, between the Mormons and the Indians, the skirmishes. And once again, I'm not blaming Mormon theology for the, for the Indian Wars, because you can go any place in this country and find monuments to Indian massacres. But... I, I think I've mentioned this before. My great grandfather lived a long time, and he was he was born like in 1880. And I had I got to know him a little bit, and he would talk about killing Indians. Um, and he he was down in Manti from area. And we are not that far removed from from these battles that that that, that would happen. And um, this created an entire environment of of, of, of violence, Randy. Just to what you said there, um, I didn't have the opportunity to have it exactly, but my grandma compiled a history of everybody's journals and stuff, and my family was in South Utah County, and there are stories of my great-grandfather rounding up Indians, throwing them in the back of their Model T Ford, driving them to the jail, putting them on trial and all that stuff. So, I mean, it really did perpetrate and follow through well into the early you know, 1900s. Well, the Indian replacement program. I mean, that happened. <laughs> that, I guess that's a whole separate podcast. No, but yeah, the, the the cultural violence continues. Now, let's talk a little bit about slavery because there's a, there's a story, and Lindsay, you, you researched how I I actually thought it was apocryphal. Um, the story basically goes that the, what was was it the Paiutes came to. Um, no, it would be the Utes. The Utes came to Brigham Young with some Paiute slaves. It wasn't Brigham Young, but it was one of his... Oh, one of his lackeys? But now this had happened to Brigham Young, too, in other instances. But go ahead. So, so you know the story better than, than I do, so go ahead. Okay, so the Utes were famous for the slave trade, and when the Mormons got there, they were really confused because, you know, up until this point, they had made a lot of money selling uh, slaves. So they would go raid tribes, they would take the children, usually, and the women, and then they would sell them into slavery. Horrific conditions. And... Uh, this is how the Utes survived for a long time after they were invaded by the Spanish. So they go to Utah and they're trying to sell these slaves and the Mormons say, no, 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 that's, that's wicked. We don't want to do that. Slavery is okay for black people because they're really depraved, but uh, not for Indians. We don't right, like the way... Jews. Less delightful is, is <laughs> yeah, what I exactly. think we're hearing. Um, and the history of Mormonism and black slavery is a whole different topic. But uh, so... There are times when the Indians would come and say, no, we want you to buy these slaves. And Brigham said, please just stop doing that. We'll trade with you instead. So the Utes had to ramp it up, and they started being very violent. They would camp outside Mormon encampments, which were very rugged at the time, and they would take the children, and with their uh, open wounds, they would stick hot metal in there and let the, you know, sorry, that might be too graphic for your listeners, but... um, and one of the terrible stories, and if you don't want to hear this, this is a hard story. It's a very hard story for me to read. They, the story is that 
they approached uh, a Mormon, and I forget his name, but you can look it up online. And he had two, one of the Ute traders had two young children, about five or six years old. And he said, do you want these kids? And he said, no, we're not going to buy slaves. That's wrong. And so he took one of the kids and just smashed his head against a rock and killed him. And, um, and so the Mormon said, okay, 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 we'll buy the other one. And so they did. And so for a long time, Mormons, not a long time, for a short period of time, Mormons bought slaves. Um, and then they would adopt them into families. So John D. Lee famously had uh, bought some slave children for his wife. But I was, what I was telling John is it's not completely benevolent. Those people were basically servants the rest of their lives. Right. So this is, this is the environment that Mormonism seeds in. And when I talked in the beginning about, about Western culture. And, and the, once again, this is, you'll find the same things going on in Phoenix and going on in Denver and going on in Kansas City. But we had City. the priesthood. <laughs> and, no, I'm ser- I mean, the holy priesthood was a violent time. They would have their high councils, the castrations in southern Utah, done in the name of the priesthood. Yes. Um, yeah, it, it gives it this authority. Um, you know, you, when you watch the movies, you see the cattle barons who have all the power. Well, the priesthood automatically invested these guys with power. And let's be clear, most bishops were just good guys trying to do the best they could. But when they went rogue, man, they went rogue, like the one down in Ephraim who castrated the guy because he was Bishop a love Snow. interest. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so um, uh, because there was no check on the power. That, that, that's the problem with something like the priesthood is it's unchecked power. Which is also the problem uh, that happened in in '57, because uh, Brigham Young couldn't take the chance that the army would show up and instill civilization into <laughs> you know into Utah territory, and and that's why everybody was so on edge because you know the army was coming they were, and, and they were going to you know uh, force law and order. Uh, it wasn't, you know, wasn't Brigham Young in charge. If the Civil War hadn't come along, because I think at the time, um, Johnson's army was the second largest standing army um, in, in, in the United States. Like it was a bit, there was a lot of deployment. But, you know, as I mentioned that, it, that goes to the psychology that we're talking about. Mormons who know this story will tell you that. That's, they'll say that same sentence I just said. If the Civil War had not come along, who knows what would have happened? As if God caused the civil war to happen, which is a bloody, bloody thing, in order to preserve the Mormons. But this goes completely in the narrative that we're talking about. This is Book of Mormon epic stuff to, 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 to cause a war on the East Coast. 50,000 people died in Gettysburg. And they didn't just, like, movie die like, ugh! get shot in the belly and kill over. This was like moaning and groaning and dying for days. This was horrific stuff. And that's in Mormonism, that's God's method. And all of the stories we just talked about were done in the name of God. There was, there was God's justification and his blessing on almost all of these conflicts that I've read about. So let's fast forward in time. Let's fast forward to the end of World War II. Now, World War I, the Mormons pretty well sat out because... Um, uh, well, of course, the, the, the Yankees didn't get involved until the very end anyway, and um, they gave deferments to farmers, and this was an agricultural area, so most people didn't. Um, the, the flu epidemic of 1918 was much more of an influencer on Mormonism. Then World War II comes along, and you got to remember that Mormons are looking for identity. Um, this Western ethos that we're talking about is dying. 
um, polygamy's gone. A lot of the early doctrines, the independence thing, um, the, the America's becoming more and more pluralistic. Uh, the 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 automobile, the train is 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 bringing you know a single unified culture, and Americans are and Mormons are losing their identity. And matter of fact. The, the era of the church, if you can get your hand on the manuals from the, from pre-depression, they're wonderful. They're full of poetry and like secular learning and then that damn depression came along and everybody retrenched into fundamentalism. Um, so after the war, Amer- uh, Mormons find their stride because the war ends with the birth of the atomic era and the birth of the Cold War and this just plays right into Mormon rhetoric and we have the players in the right place. Um, with Benson and some of those other guys, and Mormonism just gets this great big boner for the for the Cold War. We lose the beards. We, we get the suits. We lose the beards. We follow the G-man mentality. Um, counterculture starts coming along, and we go counter counterculture. Um, I, I, I read, and I've been told this isn't true since, but I still think it might be true that BYU is the only university in the '60s to have a. Um, a pro-war, like an like a anti-anti-war rally, you know, like everybody else is like, <laughs> but not BYU. They're like, go Vietnam, you know. Uh, so, um, so Mormonism and much of what we know today is still left over from that period. I mean, the whole clean-shaven thing. And what's funny is you watch the the the, the portraits. There's a great there's a great. Um, I think it's in the Church History Museum. It might be in the DUP Museum. But there's this round room that has all the portraits from all the, the 12. And you can watch as it comes, and the facial hair disappears. And they like morph into the, the G-men. Um, and and, and they, that, that era comes up. But this era is, Americans are defined in terms of violence. And it's a proactive violence that is, because guns... Guns are not a defensive weapon, right? And I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not trying to say anything anti-gun here, but a gun is an offensive weapon. The only way a gun, and I'm pointing my finger at everybody <laughs> in this room right now, um, the only way a gun is, is defense is by the threat of violence. The only, that's that's, that's the, the, the defense. And I bring that up because that was the mentality of the Cold War. So rather than build castles and moats, the Cold War was, well, you think you have a big gun. I have a bigger fucking gun. And if, you, if you're coming after me, I'm going to come after you twice. And, uh, and that's not even a joke. It's called MAD, Mutual Assured Destruction. There was a reason we had enough nuclear weapons to blow up the world, world 19 times over because it wasn't going to fail. You launch on us, and we're going to wipe every motherfucker on this planet off, off, off the face of it. I actually don't know that it was a bad idea. It sounds patently crazy, right? But no one's dropped a nuclear bomb. It's just so crazy it might work. <laughs> just so crazy it did work, right? Because you, you pull the trigger and it's just sayonara, right? It's the but we, end. But like, to your point, we have this, now we have Cleon Skousen publishing all of his end-of-day stuff. We have all of this. This is the stuff I really got into as a teenager, reading all this, like, end of the world, the earth will be cleansed with fire. And it, right. I remember praying for it to come and being so excited that, you know, but I would have nightmares that my neighbors would come at gunpoint for my food storage because I slept right next to the food storage closet. But, I mean, we we were taught to be excited about it. Yes, yep, we were. The streets it, would, be, would run with blood. Yay! Well, but what, what I think is funny here, and we, I think we came to this a couple weeks ago on the podcast, 
I, I, I look at the gun culture of Utah, and I don't think it's particularly influenced by Mormonism. I don't think that Utah has more of a gun culture than other Western cities that aren't that don't have the Mormon influence. And my experience in church is not really gun-driven. It's more driven by this food storage hunker-down mentality than it is of, of, of violence, of, of an individual violence. Now, there are plenty of people who have guns um, in, 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 in Mormonism in the West, but I don't see that as something that the church promotes. Matter of fact, the church sort of shook everything up in the 90s when it was really getting, um, everybody's getting really hyper excited about um, um, concealed. concealed carry permits. All right, listen, all you out there, <laughs> me talking to you. If you want to prevent crime, don't conceal the motherfucking gun. Wear it on your hip. Like, there's no law in Utah. You don't have to have a permit. You can walk around with a loaded gun on your hip in Utah with no permit. That's You want to talk about deterrent, that's the deterrent. Take a shotgun around with you. I have to say, when my husband went to his concealed permit class, the man teaching the class told him that in every sacrament meeting, there the bishop hands out a special, like, recommend to someone to carry a gun. This is what he, this is what he told him. So... And it's it, the church only gives it to one person or maybe two in the congregation at any given time. Justin, I, I, I doubt it because the, the reference I was making to the '90s when the church came out and said, "No guns." You need the special recommend. No, the second anointing of the second. The recommend is worthless if everybody has a gun. <laughs> uh, um. Hey, let, let's go back a minute because um, I want to go back to uh, the '60s. Because apparently, from looking around here, I'm the oldest dude at the table. Um, so I remember uh, the Cold War, uh, the '60s version of the Cold War, um, and it was just one decades-long paranoia fest. Everybody was afraid of everything, or, or everything across the ocean, right? And and we were afraid of the Russians, and we were afraid of their weapons, and we were afraid of uh, their cultural influence, and it was happening any day now. And I grew up in a family that had a, a, a bit of that paranoia, right? Um, and, and, you know, the, the family... We made our living off of that paranoia. You know, we were military family, so that helps. Um, but uh, everybody was afraid of the Russians. It was happening any day now. And a lot of people conflated this, or maybe it's not such a conflation. Maybe it was a direct connection. But um, they, were, they were saying the methodology of Armageddon was, uh, you know, the, this Cold War coming hot. You know, it, it was going to be this nuclear destruction. That was Armageddon. And so we needed to be prepared for that, uh, that nuclear Armageddon so that we could take our food storage and throw it in the back of a cart and walk to Missouri. And this was, this was something that every single person knew. Well, this didn't end in the '60s because I was born no, no, no. in '73. Right, right. I'm, I'm, but I'm saying it was. Uh, you know, I tell my kids this today, and they just go, "Oh, Dad, that's one of your crazy stories." And I'm going, "No, no, no! Everybody knew this." When when I was a kid, um, loud thunderstorms would scare me because it was the end. Because that's the first. Yeah. Yeah, and we knew to watch for flashbangs. Um, um, so Did you ever look at the moon cover. when it was red and be like? 
The moon is turning red like blood. Well, well, yeah, I was just like ready for it. Of course, but yeah, yeah, but it 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 was real. And um, I graduated from high school in '91, which is the year we invaded Iraq, and everybody was ready. Ready. That that was the end. We were we were heading into Persia, right? This was Gog and Magog. We were. This was the end. Um, and and that mentality was 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 ever present. But um, I, I. I mean, let's be clear to keep with our thesis is the Russians and us fighting the Russians was going to be the end. It wasn't going to be um, like locust. Those that was that was those were helicopters, you see, and the stars falling. Those were nukes. Yeah. You know, it it, it was this this violent thing that was going yeah. to happen. All the fire. That's the nuclear explosions. You know. Yeah. And I know I, I brought this up a couple of weeks ago, but it's a fair question to any Mormon. And who's collecting a year's worth of food storage? The question is why. What happens when the year is up? Um, well, then we have established Zion in Missouri. Then you crawl they out of your hidey hole. They have a huge garden there. Like, have you heard guys. about their big Fuck garden? Fuck you! I didn't give you any of my food, but can I have some of that stuff now? We I mean, we were told stories even at the Welfare Square about this big garden in Missouri that you know is supposedly rumored to be able to feed us all. Only the enough for well, the righteous. The granary. The, these grain. I've seen doc. These two granaries. There's one. There's one in Kaysville, and there's one on like about 33rd South, 32nd South. The church claims that they are full. Of hard winter, red winter, whatever it is, yeah. all the time. Oh, the, just don't knock the canneries. I love the cannery. What's what is the what is the um, the the malnutrition malady you get? Like if you only eat wheat. Like no, this is a, like a real thing. Scurvy? Is that? There is scurvy too. <laughs> Our, there is a disease I can't remember. There is, but yeah, you're gonna come here halfway, halfway to because to, it's only gonna be a year. Because like Jesus has to come for the end. Cause we only have years worth of. But but this this talk about the violence. When you talk to Mormons who have their years worth of food storage, ask them about the people in their ward who don't. Because they want to let those motherfuckers burn. They are ready to let everybody. It's not like, well, shit, I, I know I've got a year. I'll do nine months and starve for three. Help, help yourself to my wheat and canned peaches. It is not that way at all. No, if you want to hear a violent talk, ask that question. What happens with I'm your not, neighbors? And it's I'm like, screw kidding. those guys. Because part of my. <laughs> I'm just so excited I'm knocking the mic over here. Part of my year's supply is I've got a year's supply of bullets. <laughs> right? And so any some bitch that comes and tries to take my red winter wheat is going to find out another thing. I had a year's supply of toilet paper and chocolate. I figured <laughs> I, I kept, it kept better than wheat, and I could barter. Everybody go to John's house during the Armageddon. Now, Guys. now it's a year's supply of scotch. <laughs> By year's supply, I mean like log of I, 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 can, I can kill myself in 72 hours with, with enough with the scotch. But I, I if feel you do like it right. When we talk about race, so going back to the 60s, the Red Scare, communism was a big threat at the time. And if you look up, is it Benson? I always get Benson and Kimball confused. Benson wrote the foreword to that that book called The Black Hammer, and it's talking about <laughs> how black people and Martin Luther King was a tool of the communist um, thugs. And it was completely racist, right? So again, we're using our racist uh, sentiments that are supported by Book of Mormon, uh, you know, the entire Book of Mormon, to enact cultural violence justify physical violence so this is a very important arc that mormonism has this this culture of 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 violence and this violence that is induced by god to punish people to punish the wicked 
we move into this, the, the civil rights movement and all the things that happened in the 60s, and you have the, the John Birchers and, and the ultra-conservatives, and these people come out, and you can find conference talks that say these things, and they identify as part of this conspiracy. And the, 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 actually the big book that, that um, really took, had a lot of influence in Mormon culture was a book called None Dare Call It Conspiracy. And the book points out that you have the communist threat that has two wings in American culture. One is the civil rights movement, and the other is feminism. And you have the birth, and of course, through the whole thing is an anti-intellectualism. So civil rights, intellectualism, and feminism. So in this period, from this rhetoric of violence that we can trace back to the Book of Mormon, we see the sleight of hand that happens in the 60s. And we fast forward to you know September of 92, and we see that the greatest threats to Mormonism are right. you know, feminists and intellectuals, and I forget what the rest of gays. it was. Gays. Homosexuals. It's always the gays. Right. Well, and, and the homosexual movement was also identified to be part of the, part of the communist. Um, well, it's rooted in deep misogyny because if men act like women... That's a problem. So, so the, these elements, this bigotry that remains in the church to this day, can really be traced back to this 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 violence that we've been we've been pointing out o- over the years. And unfortunately, it was this voice of paranoia that came in from from the outside that the Mormons just sucked that stuff right up. And and they which they, is ironic because we were so anti-government for so long. And then we just became so patriotic, you know. Yeah, but I think that the thread there is is the paranoia because the the Mormons distrusted everybody, you know, from the day that they moved to to Utah. They distrusted the army, they distrusted the Indians, they distrusted the settlers, everybody on the Oregon Trail. They were afraid of everybody. They they distrusted everybody. Everybody was up to something, and and then you know we had this period in in the early 19th or 20th century when not very much was happening and and we had to have an outlet for our paranoia and that outlet became uh, the cold war you know so now we have we have a face for our paranoia now we can be distrustful and afraid of the russians and so that's good because you know we went 50 years without a face for our for our fears and you know if you go to like wards down in Payson Go into the high priest group. You'll find people that still tell you like the Russians are. This, this is just a big game. They're just waiting us out. There's there's a quote that I, I should I should dig up that says that supposedly quotes some communist leader say we'll act like everybody else and we'll lay low and then we'll come and take. There are still Mormons who believe in go the Cold on War. any uh, LDS like Liberty site yeah. uh, or John McNaughton. He's a perfect example. Oh God! <laughs> they they still circulate those old Benson talks that that the church has now taken off LDS.org that talk about communism. Like, I think it was Benson that went on this crazy talk in the 70s or 60s that was just all, like, communist, communist, America, America. Yeah, I have a copy of the talk. I should scan it and post it. Yeah. The civil rights movement. They don't, the they don't the have that on LDS.org anymore. Of course not, yeah. yeah. Uh, and a lot of the stuff came out at BYU. You get the best rhetoric at BYU. Um, all right, so we've kind of gone full circle with violence. Um, did you get enough rapey stuff in there? Did we get is there I, rapey what, enough honestly, for you? Honestly, no, but she, I she still got this one open and I, she's ready to read. Yeah, we didn't even talk about the Book of Mormon rape scripture, which is super important. But that's a whole other topic because rape is a huge issue and violence against women in the LDS Church is a huge issue. So uh, absolutely, that's another podcast then. Yeah. 
And, uh, for some reason, I'm not very cheerful. <laughs> I was two hours ago. <laughs> um, yeah, so get your guns, get your ammo, and get your toilet paper because the commies are the commies are coming. Um, it's 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 hard to explain to people who didn't grow up in it how real that all that was. I mean, um, and and I don't care. I don't care if the church is true. It's not, by the way. Um, there's no way I'd raise my kids under that sort of fear and dread that that I had as a kid. I'd rather them. I'd rather come quick. Um, you know, uh, that's that. Why do I not have a year's worth of food storage? I don't want to survive whatever whatever you would need a year's worth of food for. That's not. Don't sign me up for that. If I'm gonna have a gun, it's gonna have one bullet. <laughs> All right. Well. <laughs> Can we talk about 15 pounds of meat again and how we saw through the bone? That, that is great. That's good stuff. You cannot just chop somebody's head off. It does not work that way. You would have to do at least three blows. Come on. Someone's been watching too much CSI Miami. Too much Dexter. I, I think I've been, I've been watching too much uh, too, too much um, Breaking Bad. <laughs> um all right, well, um, what, what, where do we need to go from here? Oh, Mormon Expressions, a production of Whitefields. You can check us out at whitefieldseducational.org. Um, look at some of the great things we have going on there. We have, um, Lindsay, we have two, um, we have two groups that are, that are starting up here uh, shortly. Um, can, can you tell us both what they are? That they're, they're, they're led, led by their, I ask you a question, I keep talking. Okay. I don't want to exercise my patriarchal. Um, no, I, okay, let me just go back to that. So, yeah, the therapist thing I'm really, really excited about because John and I have been working on this for a while. We feel like uh, in in our community it's a very sometimes disruptive and sometimes even traumatic thing to experience a faith transition, I guess, if you want to call it. And so we feel like... Th- uh, the best thing we can be doing with our money and your donations are to organize resources to help people who are who are struggling. And I think if we're all honest with ourselves, if we've gone through some sort of transition, it has affected us in some way. Um, John and I have talked about the stigma that ex-Mormons kind of feel to say, no, 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 like, I'm great now, I'm so happy. But when the church is every part of your life as it was mine, it's a hard transition. So... We have two groups that we're organizing with professional therapists. It's going to be uh, group therapy sessions, and then you can contact them for private sessions. We have um, one that I guess is co-ed for men and women, and then we have one, a separate one for women. If you are interested in this in, in the Salt Lake area, just email me at lindsay, L-I-N-D-S-A-Y, at whitefieldseducational.org, and I can get you on the list. It's $20 a session, and we're starting in March, but we're going to hopefully, if this, I mean, we've gotten a great response, but uh, we hope to continue and then eventually branch out, right? Yes, yeah. Uh, we have another session in the works. I feel uncomfortable enough to um, let the word out. It's not finalized. One of the most difficult transitions is when one person leaves the church in a marriage and the other does not. Um, and one of the difficulties in that transition is who do you trust? Um, because you can't go to the bishop, you can't go to the therapist. So we're having a session that will be led by two therapists, one of them who is a believing Mormon and one of them who is not. And um, this is aimed specifically at mixed faith couples to help them work on their marriage um, as they face the issues that happens when one person leaves. So if, if you're a couple that is interested in that, these are 
group therapy sessions, but they're 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 private um, and led by a therapist. Then contact us. You can contact Lindsay at that, or you can just send us a, an email at mail at mormonexpression.com. That's easy to remember, and we can get it to the right place. We have some other great things happening. It looks like Voices will be rebooting here in the next um, few weeks. Um, our podcast um, from from before. So those who are interested in telling their story and sharing that, um, you can contact. I think the mail the address for that it will be whatever I say it is right now. It is voices at mormonexpression.com. Um, and um, you give us can, about ten days before you email anybody. That, uh, well, you, you can that. email. I just don't expect anybody to read it for for, <laughs> for a while. Um, and. What, what other is that the is that the signal? <laughs> what other? What, what other? other <laughs> wait, so we have some other great things going. Um, we'll try to keep people posted on our Whitefields website and um, some really um, cool stuff in the works. And we enjoy uh, having you all involved. So yeah, right. I think it's going to be a good year for um, folks like us. So. In, indeed. All right. Well, as always, the discussion continues at the website at mormonexpression.com. You can head over to whitefieldseducational.org and see what's going on there. And um, Thane, Lindsay, Jen, thanks. Good night. Thank you. Thank you.